Hello, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Ron Berman, a professor of marketing at the Wharton School of Business. He focuses his research on online marketing, marketing analytics, and the marketing actions of startup firms. Back in 2011, as part of a group of collaborators composed of Berkeley and Stanford students and faculty, Ron co-authored the Startup Genome Report, an in-depth research analysis about what makes Silicon Valley startups successful. Today, we're talking with Ron about his findings on this seminal research project. But before we get into all that good stuff, Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Oleg, and thanks for hosting me. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Where does this podcast find you today? Where are you sitting? So I'm sitting in my kind of home office in Philadelphia. You know, we're all waiting for vaccinations to be more prevalent. Uh, and, and spring is coming. Like in California, I actually can notice it here. So it's becoming nicer. Evening, you know, it's kind of a nice day. Apart from that, it's just a normal weekday. Spring is definitely coming. The weather is heating up here in beautiful San Diego, where I am. You know, I think we had a, a cloudy day, you know, last week or something. Yeah, exactly. Between like, what, 75 and 78, right? Pretty much, pretty much. But let's not talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell, tell us about yourself. Let's get us started. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, please. So, so as, as you've mentioned, I'm a marketing professor at Wharton. This is my seventh year at the business school. And at Wharton, I teach and I also do research on digital marketing. So, you know, at Wharton, we have an undergrad program and an MBA program. We also have executive MBA and executive education. And among these uh, three programs, I'm at the professor that teaches mostly uh, digital marketing that covers, you know, e-commerce, uh, online advertising, two-sided networks and things like that. And also the majority of my research is on that topic. Before that, I, I did my PhD in, in Berkeley at, at the Haas School of Business. And roughly during the time when we wrote this report, um, I was a student there from 2008 to 2014, which was kind of a, a great time to be in the Bay Area and interact with startups and things like that. Do you want? Can you talk about that real quick? Sure. So you know, it was I started. It's I arrived in Berkeley in like July 2008, and by September 2008, it was like prime crisis time. Half the city was shut down. Everything was boarded up. And, you know, I was a student, so I was taking my classes. And in the first two years as a student, you, you mostly kind of, you're buried in, 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 you know, assignments and things like that. But roughly in 2010, maybe two years after that, uh, st- things started picking up. And what we saw is we saw a lot of startups being founded in that period of time. So, for example, Airbnb and Uber and Lyft. I mean, I'm trying to remember other kind of today very large companies that were founded then. Potentially, partially because, you know, the founders suddenly had free time because they lost their job or they were looking what to do. But also there was kind of this craving to try to automate and use software to do things. And finally, you know, we finally had an iPhone 3G then, even before that all of the smartphones were slow. You started seeing apps, etc. So it was like a great, great time to see innovation in the Bay Area. Yeah, crazy. And 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 you were coming. Sorry, I actually don't really know your background. You were coming as a international student at the time, or, or yeah. So let me go even backwards in time. So um, so I'm Israeli. You can hear I have an accent. And like in Israel, you know, you spend time in military. But I spent a pretty long time in military. I served for nine years doing software development. Um, and I'm part of kind of this unique program called Talpiot. You can read around about it online. But basically, it's a joint military academic program uh, where you take. You do an undergrad in physics, math, computer science, and then you kind of get to choose what you want to do in military. It's kind of a bit complex. But anyway, I was doing software development. After that, 
I uh, wanted to go to the beach and surf for two years uh, because I didn't want to do anything after a long military service. And then my, my girlfriend at the time, which which is my wife today, she told me, oh, you're going to drive yourself and me nuts. Go find a job. So I was also an MBA student at the time at Tel Aviv University. And for whatever reason, a, a VC posted a job ad that they're looking for an analyst. And I didn't know that much about what VCs do. I, I was in the military for nine years, but I knew it's something about money and startups. And I said, I like money and I like startups. So sure, I'll apply for the job. And I got the job. That's how I also got my start. Yeah, that's not bad, right? And and then, you know, I, I on the first day I arrived at the VC, they told me, well, Ron, you're, you're a bit overqualified to be an analyst. So congratulations, you're an associate. So that was like the, the fastest promotion in history. But then they said, but you but you have no clue what's the difference, right? And I said, I have no clue what's the difference. So I said, okay, you're going to do the job of an analyst for a few months and you're going to learn the ropes and then you're going to kind of start working with us on the deals, etc. So for two years, I spent time in Israel as an associate and, and then a principal in, in uh, what today is probably, I don't know if the largest, was probably one of the largest firms, uh, VC firms in Israel. Today it's called Viola Ventures. It used to be called Carmel Ventures at the time. And the interesting thing in that period is that we started seeing Israeli entrepreneurs doing web startups, which was very uncommon before that. And the the VC partners, they told me, okay, Ron, you're the kind of the young associate and we're doing the important stuff. We're going to do the, you know, the B2B enterprise software, semiconductor stuff. You're going to handle all of this uh, web stuff. But what happened is that within a year, about 90% of entrepreneurs shifted to doing webs, web companies. So it actually happened that, um, I don't know, in two years, I met about 500 companies. And it was kind of a great time to learn, etc. Although I still had this kind of dream of always getting um, a PhD and doing research. I applied all across the US. I got admitted to a few schools. And then I arrived an international student uh, to Berkeley. Yeah. So you're coming into Berkeley as like a fully formed, you know, you've already had military experience, a little bit of business experience. You're, you're, you're like a, you're like a real adult. (laughs) (laughs) When you go to business school for a PhD, you have kind of two groups of people and it's like clearly a big difference between them. So, so one group is those people who kind of straight out of undergrad and American undergrad, they go to a PhD. So they're usually 21, 22 someone is paying them to take to go to school there's a fellowship so it's maybe the first time they're actually making some money so they're they think they're rich although they're actually poor like they're poor even based on surveys like the stipends are very low and they kind of need to navigate the world and figure out what they want to do and then there the other group which i belong to i was 29 at the time is like people who had the job and consciously decided we want to get a phd and do research and we didn't want to waste time and kind of from almost day one we we knew roughly what we wanted to do but we did have a disadvantage we were very very far from our undergrads we just didn't remember anything so we also had some catch-up to do on the mathematics and other stuff Uh, so there's pros and cons all right so tell me the story behind the the startup genome project so it it was uh, very random in a sense that i was doing a phd in marketing and in marketing academia definitely the time then but even today there isn't much research that says this is startups. This is what startups do, and this is how they're different from non-startups, from just regular companies. So we do analysis of marketing strategies of companies. But because of my background in the VC world, I mean, because all of my friends were starting startups in Israel, etc., I, I told myself, okay, I want to do some research that hopefully will will combine both, maybe marketing strategies of startups, or maybe what should startups do um, in order to make their marketing successful, and partially because when I was working VC the two years before that, most of the companies I met, if they failed, 
they failed because they couldn't get customers. It's not because their technology didn't work or it's not because they couldn't raise funding. It's mostly was because when they kind of brought the uh, the product to the market, the, mar- uh, the market was not interested. So I reached out. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say product market fit. Yeah, it was just not called at the time, right? So it was called all sort of stuff. And Steve Blank was a professor at Haas. He was teaching an entrepreneurship course. And Jerome Engel Engel was another professor, uh, was teaching another course on entrepreneurship. And this is a different group than I was. I was in marketing. So I I kind of emailed them and I said, hey, you're into entrepreneurship, et cetera. I want to do an analysis of startup data. Do you maybe know where there is, you know, places where you can get data about startups? And actually... At the time, and even today, it's pretty hard to get good data about startups, partially because they're so different. You don't know even what to collect. Partially, it's all secret, right? Confidential and the private companies. And partially, they're so early stage, they don't have time to collect this thing and document it. So they're not kind of spending their time answering surveys. So I, I reached out to them. Um, and then Steve Lank responds, hey, I'm actually working with this group of people. They have amazing data. They just launched the survey. They collected it. But um, I don't think they have like, you know, they're entrepreneurs. Their goal is to build a company out of it or maybe help companies. They're not sure exactly how to do the analysis. Let me connect you with them and maybe something will come out of it. And this is roughly how the Startup Genome Project was kind of born. They, they already had a project going. And when I met them, they had data maybe from 600 startup companies. That was amazing. I've never seen this data. Basically, what they've done is they sent this survey, like very, very long survey. If you filled it out, it took like half an hour to an hour of very detailed questions. And through their network and Facebook and social media, other stu- other things, they got 600 startups to fill it out. And now they came to me and said, okay, how do we analyze it? And this is how it started. Wow. Just so I have a sense of like what the data looked like, can you talk about like what kind of questions were in that survey? Do you remember? Yeah, so I don't remember exactly, but it was something like, you know, so for example, it was asking uh, questions about, uh, describe roughly the market you're trying to address. So, you know, is it like a B2C company or a B2B company? Do you have a lot of small individual customers or, or a small number of big accounts? Do you have sales teams um, or do you have, or do you have maybe like marketing, but then people just sign up online at, uh, by themselves. And there was questions about, you know, how many lines of codes, how many lines of code have you written already? Uh, how much money did you raise? How long have you been operating? How many founders do you have? What is the background of the founders? How many paying customers do you have? How much are paying every month? A very, very long list of questions. And it was partially based on what kind of was the popular understanding at the time of what makes startups tick. But I don't think I've seen a survey that deep before that that kind of survey. So you had this kind of, well, I don't know if I could call it a wealth of data, but you had this really interesting kind of unique data set. What were you trying to do with it, you know, at the outset? What was kind of the goal of your of your project there? So what we're trying to do is is kind of find patterns in the data that would make sense, right? And, and just to, to understand, this data is, is survey-based data. So it's what we would call very noisy and very, very self-selected in the sense that we don't know, really know who fills it out and why. Like they tell us who they are, but we don't know why they chose to fill it out. And you're a bit worried that maybe you're not getting a representative sample. It's not like I called people and asked them to fill it out, um, etc. And what we're trying to understand is that if we can find uh, different stages of companies, like can we classify the companies into, let's say, more mature, less mature, 
in what you would call indeed today product market fit and, and scaling, etc. And the other thing is, can we find different types of companies? Can we say, okay, these are maybe companies, initially we started with B2B and B2C. This was kind of the, the straightforward thing to say, okay, B2C companies operate differently than B2B companies, um, and this is how we're going to analyze them. But then we saw some some more nuance in, in roughly the type of product they have and the type of customer they address. And this was the initial thing. And the problem was, how do you do that? And we did it manually. Like we literally went through all of the 600 websites of all companies. And the three of us, Bjorn, Max, and I, each one manually classified the companies. And when we had a disagreement, like, you know, we, we didn't classify the same way. We would talk and, and take the majority vote or something. And although it sounds very rudimentary, we actually do that today with actual research in academia. But, um, you know, at the time, it was a lot of time to do that. Yeah, uh, I'll just say, like, buckets are hard. Like, putting putting things in buckets is very difficult. And, and, and you know, it's like, good luck going to, you know, some company's website in German, which I don't speak. So I need to, to, to count on, on some translation or someone else to tell me and trying to understand from, you know, the, maybe the buzzword or the descriptions they have and the answers to the survey. What are they doing? And do you classify them as B2B or B2C? And also, as it, it is co- commonly happens, the, the earlier the company was, the earlier stage the company was at, the more vague it was and the more open it was. So it could be classified almost as anything, right? And the later stage it is, you can you know what the product is and you can see what the customers are, etc. So depending on the stage, that whole like B2B or B2C classification, it's like, it's, it's kind of dependent. It is dependent, right? So, so we're trying to do them independent in the sense that we said, okay, we're going to classify the type based on the type of product and customer, Right. So if, if they're addressing individual customers, they're more maybe automators. And if they're addressing uh, companies, they're more maybe um, another type integrators and things like that. And if they have a network effect, we call them the, the social network kind of aggregators, etc. So this was the type of the company. And for the stage, we mostly used metrics that were quantitative. So, you know, did they raise funding? How many employees they had? Do they say, like, we had a question, did you reach product market fit or do you feel you have? And, and we, if they did, they said, okay, they're at this stage. And how many, you know, paying customers do you have? Are you in a beta stage or you have a full product, et cetera? So a lot of these questions were helping to identify those companies. And, and this was the initial stage. We manually classified everything. Later, if you notice with this report, we published another kind of report extra about premature scaling a few months later. And what happened, I'm jumping to the end a little bit, but I'll go back. So after we published this report, it was it was hugely, hugely successful, thousands of downloads. It was cited by uh, Angela Merkel in, in, a, in, like, um, in, I think, a UN speech and things like that. We got a lot more requests to join and fill out the survey. But then we had like over 3,000 firms, and then we could we can classify 3,000 firms uh, automatically. So we used the manually trained data that we've done before on the 600 firms to classify the other 3,000 using machine learning. Let's pause there. Can, can you talk about why you think um, you know this blew up the way that it did? Why, why was it so popular? So there were a few things. I think, first of all, it, it contained data from a lot of companies. I mean, until that time, if you read academic research on entrepreneurship, the data, because it's hard to get data and, and, and it's hard to collect, etc., 
is still mostly on, or at least at the time, on manufacturing companies. So they would go, let's say, to Canada, which has good data from, let's say, uh, tax records, and they would collect all of the manufacturing tax records and, and infer from that stuff. Or they would go to the small and uh, medium business administration that they has good data, but then you're kind of mixing up startups with, you know, restaurants and, and small shops and things like that. So, so, so the first thing, it was just data of, of only 600 tech startups, which was unique. The second thing is the data didn't include just who are the founders and how much money they raised. It actually had some numbers about number of employee, uh, employees, uh, number of customers. Do you feel like you reach product market fit or not? So it's very compelling. And the third thing, which I think uh, this is kind of the, the genius of, of Bjorn and Max, I was focused on the technical analysis, but they made it very, very approachable to read. They really, really cared that people will be able to digest, although if you read the report, it's long. There's a lot of stuff in there. But it starts with an executive summary, and you can read those and say, okay, I understand what those means. It uses terms that were more uh, common in the industry versus academia, uh, so it also makes it much more approachable. And generally, I think... Another thing they've done is kind of they timed the publication with a few, you know, TechCrunch wrote an article about it, I mean, Mashable and, and other kind of tech blogs that were popular at the time. And this also created a lot of um, attention to it. Can you give us just a summary of, of what you found? The first thing we kind of wanted to validate is, is does the stage analysis that we found, you know, the discovery stage and, and the other stages that, that we have there for the firms, does it kind of make sense in the sense that, you know, we... We based it on, on Steve Blank's framework and other frameworks, but does, let's say, a later stage company, on average, more is it more successful than an earlier stage company? When we say successful, I mean, does it have more customers or does it actually have more products or does it have more employees and things like that? And, and or let's say, was it successful in raising money, which we didn't use the fundraising to say which, which uh, stage the company was at? And the answer was yes. So there is correlation between, let's say, maturity and, and those list of stages. It is somewhat, you know, kind of in hindsight, it was designed to be like that, but at least kind of they made sense. And the second thing we, we found out is that those types of companies that kind of we define those, let's say, four classifications, they do operate slightly differently. So what we call, let's say, a validation or discovery stage for I don't know, an automizer firm, automator firm is different than the other types of firms, etc. So we have different levels that you can classify firms. And then kind of the, the major interesting thing, at least for me, was, and, and this was found a bit later, if companies jump stages, like they don't go through discovery, validation, efficiency, and scale. They go from discovery to efficiency on one dimension, but discovery to scale in other dimensions. So for example, they hire too many marketing people, but don't invest in the product. Or they develop the product too many features, but, but never try to get customers, etc. Then their probability of failure was dramatically higher. So we saw that they were less successful in fundraising, getting customers, actually having revenue. But we also by then had some data about failure and we saw that uh, way more of them fail if they, if basically they kind of jump to these stages, which we call premature scaling. Right. They skip stages. So it's almost like they're not growing how they should. Yeah. Or you can think about it. You invest all of your time in financing and getting the money, but you don't invest in what, how to allocate the money in the firm correctly. Or you hire or you build the best marketing team in the world, but they don't have a product to sell, right, or to market. So because the, the tech team is always behind. 
or or what was very common and still common today, the founders are all tech people, so they want to make the best product in the world with a lot of features before they actually bring it to the market. Um, and and then what what you have is you know it fails because no one is interested in those features, it takes too much time, too much too much money, etc. Were there any other kind of common patterns that that would lead to failure that you noticed? So we saw that. Again, we didn't have good data on failure, so because we kind of it was a very short period of time where we got the data. So we had it was mostly like success, let's say, like success in in, in fundraising, success in getting customers, success in revenues. We saw that startups that were saying, and I'm saying it's saying, we don't know if they did it and how well they did it, but at least there was correlation there between following best practices and the best practices where you know we have metrics and we follow them. And we have um, a few mentors that we take advice from. And we have kind of a process that we follow to listen to the customer and incorporate feedback into our product, things like that. And another thing we found, we looked, and again, this is all correlational between the composition of the founding team and maybe a match to the market or product they're going to. And we saw, for example, that Business-heavy founding team were better at startups that kind of maybe are not direct to customer, but if you have salespeople and you need to convince people to buy the product, etc., they were much better at that, like creating a let's say a scalable sales process. While technical-heavy startup teams were kind of more successful with direct to customer and and products that don't need a lot of marketing, uh, but the product really really matters there. So there was this aspect. And finally, there's a few other things which I don't even know how to interpret. Like, you know, there was correlation between having more pivots and being able to raise more funding. But we don't know if this is because, you know, the companies that didn't pivot successfully, they just died, so they don't appear in our data. So we just have uh, selection, right? Like, the companies who stay in the data are the ones that have more pivots. Or, or is it because... Uh, the kind of the reverse causality that companies who are failing they realize they need to pivot and they pivot successfully and as a result they're they're basically raising funding so i can tell you oh you should pivot two times and you'll be more successful than one time but i can tell you that it appears that companies who pivoted more they happen to be more successful over time right so you're kind of seeing these patterns and there's no like you, you try to explain them but there's no certain kind of there's no certain explanation, right? Because it's still so new. There's no certain explanation because it's new. And also, I, I, you know, I'm going to be always cautious about interpreting it to say, if I have two options, let's say fundraising or not fundraising, should I fundraise or not, right? And you say, oh, the startup genome says that companies who fundraise too much money will fail more. I'm like, well, that's on average. First of all, of course, there's a distribution for companies. Some should fundraise and some not. And the other thing is, again, we don't know what came first, the fundraising and success or the success in fundraising. Um, and that's a common thing in this data, right? We don't have data that kind of says, oh, we tracked those companies for 10, 15 years and we maybe even randomized or, or did something to... to which we can we can never run experiments with these stuff. So companies, although in, maybe we'll get to it in the end if you're interested, the current kind of state of the art research in entrepreneurship is trying to randomize those experiments just on on smaller scale and in other countries. No, that's so interesting because I th- I think what I'm what I'm picking up from this is like if when you're doing this selection of data or when you're sending out these surveys, you're really only going to get responses from startup companies that still exist. So you're not really representing like a lot of the failed startups, right? Like they're just never going to submit a survey. So, Right. So, but 
Well, so there is bias on one hand, but on the other hand, you, you are getting, uh, so you can think about it, I'm going to get, uh, let's imagine there are four stages of startups, right? So I'm going to get a lot of them in stage one, those that haven't failed yet. And I'm going to get a small number of stage four, that those that haven't failed yet and, and kind of reach a mature stage. And you can imagine that the world is constantly having a rejuvenation of startups, like constantly new startups are born. So the distribution you will get, like on those stages, is actually representative. Like you will get more stage one and, and less. What you won't be able to say, yep, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that's interesting. I, I would imagine I would imagine early stage startups actually wouldn't do as many surveys just because they're so new. It's like, you know, you're trying to build your product. You're trying to like figure out like your early hires. And then, you know, as you kind of advance and you grow as a startup, maybe you have more time and energy to like do surveys. But maybe my thinking's wrong on that. I'm... Uh, I actually thought it's the opposite. Actually, I'll tell you why it's the opposite, right? Because if you're a CEO of a startup with 200 employees or 500 employees, you're way too busy to fill out some random survey on the internet, right? And if you're like a group of founders that started a few months ago and you have maybe angel funding, maybe angel funding, etc., and and you kind of maybe want to even get self-validation for your idea, you're going to fill out a survey. But, But let me tell you what the trick was. There was a trick to convince people to fill out a survey. This was important. What we told companies is that if they fill out a survey... We're going to send them this report before the other, before kind of the big publication. And this will allow them to get some benchmarking and see how other companies are doing and what they're doing and potentially improve their decision making. A little FOMO. It it wasn't FOMO. It was kind of this understanding, at least this idea that says, look, you need to make many decisions uh, while running a startup. I mean, if you knew what the best practices are from the industry, you possibly would have a smaller amount of mistakes. Okay, so it kind of makes sense. I'll give you the benchmarks. You'll see what works. You'll see what doesn't work. And in the future, we'll make less mistakes. And and indeed, when the startup Geno progressed, this is it became a company that this is what they did. Um, it's split into two companies, actually. But one company, it became Startup Compass. And what they did is, or just Compass, is they figured out that for e-commerce startup, you you clearly can do the survey in a much more focused manner. Like for e-commerce, you have KPIs and you know the metrics, etc. And there you can give very good um, benchmarks. But this is how it started with the survey. And what we did is we sent this to all of the companies and a lot of them said, oh, it's great to know that I'm in stage one, I'm very early stage. It's great to know that the company in stage three, at least the majority of them, had to invest this amount of money to reach that stage so at least i can maybe plan for my fundraising or something like that yeah you're kind of getting insights that you wouldn't normally get uh, definitely not from a big number of companies like you can ask someone but it's all anecdotal so this was good data to share with people okay so on the on the with, with the idea of this is a podcast for for founders and startup uh, builders what insights did you learn about founders and you know the people ultimately building startups so on the there was a lot of the founding team. Um, now the, the report covers a lot, but I think the things that kind of are are interesting, and I know that other research later has shown, kind of works on on larger sets of companies and and better data, etc. So solo founders, some of them are very very successful, but most of them fail. Okay, so if you're starting your own company alone, it's really hard for a few reasons. It's hard because you don't have kind of um, kind of a brainstorming partner. It's hard because you don't have someone to validate your ideas and things like that. 
usually you want someone who's uh, complementary to your skills. You want someone that, you know, you're a tech founder, you want a business founder or something like that. And we indeed see, saw that more balanced teams um, are better at fundraising. They have uh, faster user growth and they're less, maybe less likely to scale prematurely. So when I mean balance, you want business people, tech people, you want from maybe a variety of industries, things like, things like that. So that was one thing on the founding team. We saw this thing of, of premature scaling, which I think even today, many companies go through. And what we found, which was interesting, is that you think you can never raise too much money, but the answer is you can. And, and now I have a hypothesis with why this happens. I'm not sure it's true because no one is, as far as I know, not only now or other researchers in entrepreneurship are checking kind of this hypothesis. But the idea is, suppose I actually need $3 million for my next round or for the next year, but I'm successful and popular and whatever. I'm not really growing quickly. I'm just really good at fundraising. I get $10 million. What will happen is that the investors will really push me and pressure me to invest this money in something, right? Because if the money is sitting in the bank, it feels like the money is not working. And that causes me to hire way too many employees, have fancy offices, blah, 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 et cetera. And this is, it's almost causing premature scaling when you have too much money in the bank. You're exceeding your valuation. You're exceeding and also like you feeling if I have the money, I probably need to do something with it, right? It needs to work. And the issue right. is that if, if, if it works on, on, we call it in Hebrew, like driving in neutral, right? So it's, it's kind of like, I, I, oh, I have the best marketing team, but they have nothing to market. Or I have the best developers, but but there's no product to sell or something like that. Then then you're basically prematurely scaling. So that was that. And then another thing we learned, I'm trying to to think kind of of, of maybe the major insights uh, for founders. Um, it was mostly about the team fundraising and allocation across the the different parts of the firm, like never neglect marketing, never neglect the finance, never neglect the operations, never neglect, of course, R&D, kind of try to do it holistically and not just, oh, we're just R&D now and, and we'll think marketing in five years when we get to the market. Basically, think holistically, invest in all areas. Yeah. So, you know, some things you don't need to do too early, like, and 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 what we kind of find is, is you know, this uh, let's say the ratios of how much you need to invest, they change by the, the stage of the company. I mean, and it kind of makes sense, right? You're in the discovery stage, you don't have a product, you don't have product market fit, etc. You don't need fancy offices and you don't need a big marketing team. But you're in the scale stage, okay, you, you need a great sales team and probably you don't need even a single salesperson at the beginning. So, th so this kind of, let's say, weights change over time. But you always want to look at what are the appropriate weights for your stage or, or look around the companies around you or use a benchmarking process and say, okay, if I'm going way over in one of these, I need to have a good reason. If I'm growing really quickly, it's great, but then that means I need to, to scale everything up. Or maybe I'm just comfortable, you know, I came from marketing, so I'm comfortable hiring marketing people, and that's not the best way to, to kind of uh, operate a firm. Uh, and then did you learn anything about investors uh, through the report and doing that? Yeah, we learned that uh, active investors that say that give a lot of um, advice to companies do not seem to help the companies that much. <laughs> you know, there was, let's say, no correlation between investors claiming to be really good at helping the companies they're investing in and the success of the companies. And I wasn't that surprised having worked in VC. I think, you know, VCs are, are great at allocating money 
and they're often great at specific points of the company, you know, making specific connections, or maybe when the company is really large already, and then you need kind of strategic decisions. But, you know, early stage, asking your investor what the product should be and what the market should be, like, I don't think investors are better than the entrepreneurs themselves or the market itself in knowing what customers want or need. So that was that. I don't know that we asked that many other questions because mostly we ask companies about investors. I don't think we we have, like... There's two reasons we didn't ask too many questions about investors. There's much more academic research on investors. The data is much better on that side. And generally, investors at least consider themselves much busier than the founders that filled out our survey. And there's way more founders than investors. So they were not that willing to fill out our surveys compared to, to, to companies. We, we did get interesting results from accelerators across the world, which are you can think of investors, but they're like kind of more institutionally oriented to a different goal. And that merged into the other part of the company where, where sort of jump split, which today they do a lot of ecosystem analysis. So they're trying to help entrepreneurial ecosystems around the world analyze themselves, benchmark to other other ecosystems. And what I mean ecosystem, I mean like a metro area or a set of a, like a governmental program or something to try to help them fine tune their program or their framework to what works best in other in other countries. So they, they still issue those reports, but now they focus more on ecosystems. And the reason they do that also is because the, the accelerators, the local accelerators, the local governmental agencies help them collect the data from all of the startups. So it's much more institutionalized, the data is better, the analysis is better, et cetera. So I think this whole idea of stages is really interesting. And I just want to ask, like, how, how did those startups evolve through the different stages? And could you go over the stages one more time? Sure. So... And again, this is where my memory uh, serves me a little bit. So if not, uh, you'll have to go and read. But but basically, there are there are four we identify in the in the report, and then we say we're going to analyze two more, and we never got to that point. And the stages are discovery, where kind of the company can think about it as entrepreneurs just trying to figure out what is the idea and what is maybe the software they want to build okay so you can think about you know two people in a living room brainstorming maybe they fund they raise a little bit of angel money maybe they're tinkering with something then there's uh, the validation stage so the validation stage is is when actually they they have a product but they want to verify the product market fits so you know they, they have the initial beta customers but they're still unsure about, you know, the killer features, how the process of first sales should go, what is maybe the messaging of the company, etc. But there is a product, like they know in which market they operate, they know what they want to provide, they can have, they can kind of describe it quickly. Then there's efficiency. So efficiency is when you're saying, okay, I got my first beta customers, I have my product, I need to now build my sales process, repeat customers, customer service, a lot of the things that are beyond just having the better customers that are willing maybe to accept a somewhat mediocre product because it gives them a lot of value. And then there's scale. And with scale, you know, like, okay, let's replicate this to multiple branches, a lot of salespeople, we hire people that manage hundreds of hundreds of people and things like that. So these are the four stages we analyzed the, in the report. And 
there are numbers there, like, you know, roughly what we consider discovery, validation, efficiency, and scale. And those numbers I don't remember, but like roughly how many customers on average do you have at that point? Roughly how much revenue do you have? Roughly how many employees do you have? Things like that. And how different was it for like different company types? It was pretty different in the sense that the the length or the time um, they needed to go through stages was different. And I'll give one example. So we have companies, what we called type one, I think, which was uh, one is an automizer. So it's like a company that takes some, maybe some manual process you do today and just makes it better. So the, the example we give there is Google that made search better, but you can think about, I don't know, a company that makes uh, submitting tax forms better or something like that, just easier. And versus what we called at the time a social transformer. Now I'm I'm more in academia. I know to just call it a two-sided market or basically a market with network effects. Where there, you're still interacting with individual customers, but a lot of the service or the value you give them is that they interact with one another. So you're, you can think of Facebook or you can think of eBay or you can think of Airbnb, okay? That you kind of uh, make people interact with other people. So your product is not... Your product is the software, but but the interaction is the outcome. What we notice, for example, for these types of companies, they went through the stages much slower. The, the, the social transformer companies, the initial stages took way longer because it takes time, you know, to build the, the critical mass of people until there is a network effect. But then suddenly the efficiency and scale stage were very, very quick. Like once you reach that scale, things blow up and you grow really, really quickly. So, and, and you can read that in the report, there's actual numbers saying, okay, on average companies take, I don't know, seven months for this stage and 12 months for that stage, etc. So based on the type, they're going to have different growth curves. So they're going to have growth curves. They're going to have different funding requirements. And those numbers I don't remember, but definitely some companies require more money to pass from one stage to another. And you know, the, the, probably the primary example is a company that needs salespeople versus a company that goes direct to customer, okay? When you need a lot of salespeople, you need a lot of funding to build this organization. So that means that at some point, your scale stage, you might need to raise like a huge a huge round or something like that. While with others, maybe Automizer, if they go really quickly, they, they, they grow really quickly, they don't need salespeople, they need, you know, servers or something. So their requirements are just different. So the amounts of money were different. The, the speed they spent money was different things like that. So I understand from the report that le- that learning was a key for successful startups. Uh, what were your conclusions uh, from examining like the way that founders learn? So we asked them, you know, we asked them a few questions and, and we, we classified learning into a few types. One was, you know, do you follow mentors and do you have mentors? Like, do you just try to ask people outside uh, for their advice? And again, we saw correlation. I can't tell you that the advice helped or not, but we saw correlation between those that are asking for advice and, and are, are more successful in fundraising and in growing. So that was one one side. But the other interesting thing is that we also asked, like, do you ask the customers what they think? You know, do you have customer feedback? Do you have surveys with customers? Do you maybe analyze customer data to see what makes them happy? And definitely the companies that said that were more correlated with, with success. Now, it might be because they are later stage, but even with earlier stage companies, it seemed like that if they're saying we're willing to listen to the customers, we're interested in that, we think, like, we saw correlation with their success. And finally, there was kind of, do you have metrics that you follow and, and do you kind of follow best practices from the industry based, like, 
the metrics that you use are you using the best practices from the industry. And again, we saw a correlation there uh, with success. So all of these worked. They worked to different levels. Again, uh, the numbers are, are based on, on, the, on the sample that we had there, but all of these worked. I think what kind of didn't work, if I remember correctly, is there was one type of learning, actually, I can maybe try to look it up. It's buried in some page in the report. But there was one type that surprisingly for us didn't drive success. Okay, so there was willing, again, I'm looking at the report now. So there was willingness to learn. There was the drive to learn, like, uh, are you following thought leaders? Are you interested in, in what they do, etc.? We saw that whether people had an ability to act on feedback, like we asked this question, like, uh, where you provided an advice that changed how you did your startup, etc. And, and this was correlated with success. But that's roughly it, right? What what we didn't, and, and again, because there wasn't data at the time, is to say, do you follow like a recipe? Or do you implement this book or that book? Or, you know, the, the kind of the Lean Startup approach or method was a thing, but very early. And they, you know, the there's something called uh, something canvas. I forgot what it is. The business, the, the business model canvas or something like that. Like if you do that, does it help or not? On that, we weren't able to to collect data. Were there any kind of, um, you know, you, we were learning about how founders learn. And obviously, if you implement best practices, those are great. Do you have any advice, I guess, for um, for early stage startup founders on on how to bring in those best practices? I imagine it's kind of hard to figure out, figure out best industry practices. I think it is, especially with this data, because the, the startups are so varied and operate in so many different markets. And, you know, in the end, I can tell you on average, a company that does that is successful, but it doesn't mean that if you do it, you're going to be successful. My suggestion would be to to early on try to reach customers and potential customers and, and, and not necessarily advisors, like literally customers, like people who might be your potential customers, ask them what they think, show them the things you're developing, um, ask them how they would respond, maybe even let them use it. Um, and this will give you, in, in my opinion, at least this is where I bring in my marketing kind of professor now <laughs> view. This is what, what we know works best for companies. So this is one thing. I think the other thing is that don't wait too long until you start and, and you know, Try to raise two like tr- until you raise money and until you do that, just ha- hassle somehow and and, uh, and and launch your company early on. There's no time like today, and and you also kind of want to fail early and quickly because if if it's not a good idea, you want to move on. You don't want to spend like three years developing something that might not work. So this would be the two things I think would work. More about learning, you know. There's the research. There's all of these correlations, etc. I can tell you what we're finding out from more recent entrepreneurship research. So so kind of, I mentioned that before. We're actually now running experiments where we're giving companies randomized access to analytics, to KPIs. We're teaching them how to analyze the KPIs. We're teaching them how to understand the graphs, the charts, etc., and make decisions. And there's a few experiments. So this is not in my university, but in other universities, they've done it with kind of small businesses. I forget in which country. There was something in, in Southeast Asia and there was something in Africa, but in small businesses. Uh, and the reason you do that in those countries is just the costs are lower, right? And you do that with small businesses and you kind of give them training. 
And there's two examples. One is some people got training on the financials and how to analyze financials and think of the finance of the firm. And others got training on marketing and how to do marketing and how to do a marketing plan, etc. And a third was a control group that got no training. And luckily enough for the marketing folk, which I'm part of, both marketing and finance, people who got the training were more successful dramatically than the ones who didn't get any training. And there was no advantage to marketing over finance or the opposite. They were roughly the same. What was interesting is that when you taught people how to do marketing, they mostly invested in marketing, and this is how they became successful. When you taught people how to do financials, they mostly invested in the operations and financial aspect of the, of the company, and this is how they became successful. So my suggestion is get some, you know, some formal training in analyzing numbers, in metrics, and measure things early on. So this is one thing. And the second thing is then, then later, they just gave them metrics and KPIs and taught them how to analyze them, etc. And again, the control group got KPIs without learning how to analyze them. So they got the same analytics, but one was taught how to make decisions with data and one was, taught how, not, one was not taught how to make decisions with data. And the one that was taught how to make decisions with data dramatically improved their performance. So in my experience, a lot of the learning, a lot of Startup founders, they think if they have more data, they will become better at decision-making, but I can tell you for sure that's not true. You need to learn this stuff. You need to, you can do it formally or not formally, but you need to say, if I have this data, if I have this number, what decisions do I want to make based on them? And this makes your learning much, much, much better. Yeah. It's not just about gathering data. It's about understanding why you're doing it and, and what you're trying to do with it. Exactly. The last part is important. What you're trying to do with it is the important, not the gathering. So back in 2011, kind of final thoughts here, you planned on continuing to develop a more in, uh, intimate ontology to map the progress of startups. Were you able to do that? How'd that turn out? So uh, we were not exactly able to do that. So let me tell you what happened. It was interesting. So I continued with my PhD. You know, I, 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 a lot of my research is on advertising and, and I continue with that. Bjorn and Max uh, founded, uh, founded a company out of this survey that were saying, okay, we want to automate the data collection. Instead of people filling out surveys, we want to collect the data directly, and which will allow us now to do proper analysis and benchmarking. So it was a very interesting company that uh, connected to your Google Analytics and, and other KPIs, uh, KPI platforms, and collected the data and gave you the benchmarks. It grew tremendously fast. I think uh, the last time um, I looked at the numbers, it had like, I don't know, 15,000 startups using them or something like that. It was crazy big. And the company was acquired at some point, but what they realized is that the benchmarking is really hard across industries and where it was really useful for companies was e-commerce. So they pivot, they pivoted their own uh, business to focus on e-commerce platforms like Shopify and Magento and other platforms like that, where you had the Compass analytics plugin that gave you a lot of benchmarking from other companies connected to the same plugin. And then it was acquired. I mean, I think today they're very happy within the company that acquired them and they're building a lot of AI tools for small businesses, etc. So this was one facet. The other facet is we started to get a lot of requests, as I mentioned, from ecosystems to do more, let's say, consulting style work to help them methodically analyze their startup they're supporting, okay? You know, governments are giving them money or they're giving them other types of support. And accelerators are not only investing, but they're trying to actively also help them. And they're saying, okay, we know if a startup is successful just raising money, 
but how can we tell if our program on average works well and what are the best practices in the world? And if you Google startupgenome.com today, this is what they do. And, and JF is, is the, the CEO there. He joined Compass uh, a bit later after we wrote these reports. And they took the, the ecosystem analysis kind of to the next steps. So if you're looking for the more methodological analysis, et cetera, it's all morphed into ecosystem analysis. And they're publishing a report, I want to say every year or two years, and you can find them online. Or if you're looking for the more benchmarking aspect, that was Compass that is now morphed into a different product. All right. Well, thank you for unpacking all that. Any final thoughts before we get out of here? Thanks for hosting me. It was great to, you know, do a podcast once in a while. I can tell you for sure that on the academic side, we're finally starting to get the good data. So, you know, the academic world works slowly. Maybe in five years, you'll see a paper out of it, <laughs> which has gotten written in, in a kind of hard to understand jargon, but we might know more. But I'm hoping that this field of entrepreneurship generally, now there's finally more data and hopefully we can unpack more of, of the best practices over time that we kind of wouldn't like ask ourselves, what should we do? It's more like, why are we doing things and how should we do them? You know, just what we should do. You know, as we were preparing for the podcast, you know, what my father was saying was, you know, typically people talk about startups and building them as an art. You know, what Ron's trying to do is, and, and with this report, is to make it more of a science. So um, thank you for the thank you for the work you did. Listeners, we'll, we'll link that report back. Uh, before we get out of here, Ron, what's the, what's the best way uh, if, if a listener wants to maybe learn uh, to reach you? So... You can just go to my website, ron-berman.com. I mean, you can email, you can just email me the universities, ronbr at wharton.upen.edu, or my email is on my website or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is a bit, there's a long story behind it, but it's Market Sensei. So you can follow me, uh, message me, et cetera, and I'm available mostly by email or Twitter. All right. Well, yeah, we're out of room for long stories at this point. Yes. Uh, but Ron, <laughs> yeah, uh, we're going to end it there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for so much for sharing. Thank you, Oleg. It was a pleasure. <laughs>